Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We take verse 15 for our text this afternoon. We read the entire chapter. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers 
being made subject unto him. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text, verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the dark, threatening storms of persecution were gathering on the horizon during the time that Peter is writing this epistle. The faithful were increasingly being required to suffer for their profession and confession of faith. The Apostle John often is called the Apostle of Love. The Apostle Peter is designated the Apostle of Hope. We understand that. That hope we've seen as we've walked through the epistle. But especially now, the main point of the epistle really is on the foreground here in this verse in chapter 3. Paul addresses in this epistle the certain hope that believers have of everlasting glory. And he addresses that hope as that hope controls the life of the child of God. They're pilgrims, they're strangers, there's suffering, there's struggles. But what is it that controls their lives? The wonder of the hope of the gospel. So much so that even those around them are able to see evidence of that hope. Now that's the point that the apostle's been stressing. You're pilgrims, you're strangers. This is who you are. As you live in this manner, it's going to be evident to those around you that you belong to Christ. Now God prepared Peter in a special way to preach this gospel of hope. And even you children are aware of who Peter was and how God prepared Peter in that way. Peter was weak. Often we read about the things Peter did and we kind of chuckle, we kind of laugh, and we think, Peter, are you... Are you really thinking that? And we find Peter stumbling. We find Peter falling at times into sin and into temptation. God had to pick Peter up repeatedly. God had to assure Peter that Peter was forgiven and that God had a place for him in his kingdom and in his work. And what was it that continually becomes Peter's joy? The hope of his election. The wonder that God had chosen him and God had set his love upon him. Peter knew it was nothing of himself. He was weak. He was sinful. He had denied his Savior. He deserved to be cast off forever by his Savior. And that was Jesus who said, if you deny me, I will deny you. Peter denied him. And yet God assured him of forgiveness. Peter knew that there was no greater joy than the hope and confidence of election. The fact that Jehovah God has chosen me. He will preserve and keep me by His grace and by His mercy. Knowing His own weakness, God directed him to a profound awareness of that hope. An appreciation that he received through his trials and through his struggles and through his sin. And Peter was led to see more clearly the reason for his life. That his life was not about him. It was about God, and it was about the glory of God. 
That God's desire is not that we accumulate great wealth and riches and influence here below, but that we shine forth as light, as salt for His glory and honor. Now the apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is impressing that glorious hope upon the saints in the midst of unbearable persecution that's looming. How will they live? How will they be able to maintain themselves in the face of such opposition and such difficulty in this life? And Peter says, you don't have to be filled with terror. There's no reason for you to be filled with concern because this is the wonder that God has worked on your behalf. God has given you to know this hope. And even though naturally there's so much reason for terror, so much reason for fear, and even for us, the economy, the way in which sin is developing and manifesting itself in the church and in the world, so many reasons for occasion, for fear and for terror. But the hope that we have in Jesus Christ prevails. And that hope lifts us. And that hope carries us. And that hope is evident in your and my walk. Others will see it. And that's what the Apostle now is speaking of. That hope is going to be seen. Others are going to be seeing that you are different. That you stand out. And we know what that's like. Perhaps you see someone who's Amish. They stand out right away by their clothing, the way they talk. You know that person is Amish or that person is a Mennonite. So it is spiritually for you and for me. You young people get a job and you stand out at that job. You're different and it will be noticed. Now, granted, we live in a more sheltered area where our neighbors and others are also professing believers. But nevertheless, when we're living out of this hope and out of this comfort, we look different. And that difference is noticed. And that's what the apostle here is speaking. It's noticed by the way we dress. It's noticed by our attitude and by our conduct, by our work ethic. It's noticed by the whole of our life as we're living our life in the midst of this world. And people are going to see that. And they're going to be moved to ask us a reason for that hope. And we need to be ready to give that answer. Ready to give an answer. We take that as our theme. Noting the meaning, secondly, the way, and finally, the possibility. To give a reason of the hope that is in you. Now, what is hope? Hope is a certain, sure, future longing. This longing is based on the promise of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it's based on the wonder that God has promised to us the ultimate manifestation of his kingdom in future glory in heaven. We have that. And the apostle talked about that right from the beginning. That you have an inheritance. An inheritance is something freely given. You've not done anything to earn it. An inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And that right now God is keeping you by his power through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. Jesus spoke of that hope. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 51. Again, Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? John 11, verses 25 and 26. That's the hope that God gives to his children. The blessed assurance that though I die, yet I shall live. That God has in store for me something so marvelous and so glorious that it cannot compare to anything here below. That promise of certain glory and blessedness in heaven results in a sure hope in the midst of this life. And we talk about hope being three things so that as we live out of this hope, first of all, it shows itself in that it's an expectation. It's a looking forward to a blessedness that is to come. And God gives us that earnest expectation. It's an expectation that's rooted in the wonder of God's sovereign, eternal decree of election, in the cross of Jesus Christ, and in the life of regeneration that he's given us by his Spirit. So that knowing that life that is from above, by which we have been made new creatures in Christ, we live in the earnest expectation of the fullness of that life in heavenly glory. Secondly, it's an assurance. It's that which is certain. This isn't something that we don't know whether or not it's going to be realized. It is a certain assurance. And it's based on the promise again of God. So that hope in this sense is not uncertain. It's not merely a matter of, I hope that tomorrow is going to be a nice day so that I can go fishing. That's not the idea of this hope. This hope is sure. It is certain. Now there's times in our lives where that hope wanes and we lose the assurance and the certainty of the promise. But that hope is still certain. It's sure. God works it on the basis of His Word and the basis of His promises. And therefore, it's a confident, certain assurance that that promise is not just for others, it's for me. And that I am now a recipient of that inheritance and I am now being preserved by God with a view to the glory that awaits. It's an expectation that is certain. And finally, it involves then, throughout the course of our life, a longing. It's a fervent longing. It's that which grows within us. And as we live in the midst of this life, we're not content with our life here below. And God works that discontentment. He works a knowledge of our sin and the horror of that sin and a hatred for that sin. And God works in us that longing for the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, especially during times of trial and affliction, God stirs up that longing. And God causes us to realize that our lives are not about the things here below, but they are in the earnest expectation of that heavenly bliss that He has for us. That expectation which is certain for which we long is hope. And that's what characterizes the life of the believer. Every area of your life and mine must be characterized by that 
eager expectation, that confident assurance, and that intense longing that's based on God's word and God's promises. And it's going to show itself as mothers in the home struggling with the challenges and the difficulties that come our way. We lay hold on God's word and we find our hope in that promise and in that earnest expectation as we work and as we play in the midst of this world. We are filled with hope and joy for what God has given us. And we realize again and again, I'm undeserving. This is what my God has done for me. He's given to me a life that will never die. Though I die, yet I shall live. And God stirs up that awareness within us as we spend time in His Word and in prayer. There's a positive, joyful attitude that controls us. And it controls us through the disappointments, through the struggles of life, because we lay hold on God's Word and God's promise. We pray for grace to be content. We pray for the grace to even rejoice in the midst of affliction. We pray for the grace to understand and to see that affliction is for my profit. I can't see that according to the flesh, but by faith, I believe that and I lay hold on it. We as Reformed believers have so much reason for that joy and that hope. We confess that Jehovah God is sovereign in every area of our lives. We confess salvation is all of grace. It's not at all of man. Our living hope and our thankfulness to God is evident in the confession that we make concerning our salvation. And it characterizes our lives. We are thankful And that thankfulness is seen in a desire to glorify God, to worship. Why do we come to church? Why is it that we send our children to Christian education? Why is it that we teach them their catechism? Because we're thankful children of God. And we desire to impress upon them the wonder of God's greatness and the thankfulness that we owe unto Him. As Christians, we're filled with many different emotions, but through it all, Joy and hope characterize our expectation. That hope expresses itself in very practical ways. What's really important in life? What isn't? Again, when we're young, we're caught up in things that we think are really important. And then God leads us through various circumstances and situations. And we look back and we realize, no, that wasn't so important. That wasn't so necessary. God causes us to understand increasingly what our attitude toward the world and worldly goods and worldly pleasures is to be. And this hope so dominates that God works grace in the life of an elderly child of God who's willing and able to say, there's nothing that holds me back. This world and everything that's in it is nothing compared to the wonder and the joy that is mine in Christ and the hope that I have of the life that will be with Him to all eternity. This hope moves us to live as pilgrims and as strangers in this life. And it shows itself in a deep dissatisfaction with sin and the power of sin. 
a hatred toward that sin. And it shows itself in a deep conviction concerning the hope that is in Jesus Christ and the desire to live eternally with Him. The Apostle's point is this. This hope dominates your life. This hope controls your life. It controls your conduct, your attitude, everything. What is it that makes you get up in the morning? What is it that keeps you working through the day? With what expectation do you go to bed at night? It's this glorious hope that lives in your heart and in your soul. And so concerning that, he says, be ready always to give an answer to every man. Because concerning this hope, you're going to be asked questions. People are going to see something in you, again, that stands out, that's different. Maybe you're going through the death of a loved one, sorrow and deep suffering. And they're going to be amazed at your attitude or the things you say. And they're going to ask a question. How can you say that? Perhaps it's a trial that God's leading you through. An affliction. And they see how you're dealing with it. Maybe it's even a nurse. Maybe it's a doctor who's interacting with you. Maybe it's another patient. Perhaps it's someone on the playground. Maybe it's someone at college, someone at work. In high school, you're going to get a job. And they're going to see there's something different about this individual. And you say you don't work on Sunday. They're going to say, why don't you work on Sunday? And you say, well, I go to church. And they say, well, you can still come in then at noon. And you say, no, I go to church twice. And they say, well, well, why would you go to church twice? And you're going to talk about the hope that lives within you and the glory that you desire to show to God. This concretely affects our life and our walk. And that's what the apostle here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is presupposing. This hope is going to show itself in your life. You're not simply going to be living in the world and living like the world lives. But you're different. And that difference will be evident. And when someone asks, don't be embarrassed to speak about that hope. That's going to be the struggle and the difficulty. You go to church. You go to societies. You make time to help people and to serve others. You're committed to your marriage. You love your parents and you seek their well-being. You're not afraid to talk about spiritual things when such things come up. The hope that you have lives in your heart as an everlasting hope. And as such then, you can't help but speak about it. That's the idea that the apostle is emphasizing. Your testimony is that you're a pilgrim. You're a stranger here below. Now, Peter knew what it was to fail in that regard, as we noted. We know what it is to fail. To fail miserably. He was weak. He learned from his failures. And so it is for us. We're weak. We learn from our failures. And we learn increasingly that this world is not our resting place. We look forward to a better home that is an heavenly one. Maybe that I'm on my sickbed. Maybe that I'm financially broke. I may have lived through one heartache after another heartache. But I'm not as one who lacks hope. The hope that God has worked in my heart lifts me 
It sustains me above the earthly. It propels me through life. Now, are you ready to give an answer? The word literally for answer here is apology. Are you ready to give them an apology? Now, that doesn't mean that you're apologizing for that hope. And again, that's so often what we feel, isn't it? Someone asks us questions and we try to evade them. We don't want to talk about spiritual things so much. We don't want to look different. And when we start telling them that we go to church twice, we tell them that, no, we keep the whole day sacred and therefore we don't work on Sunday. Then they start asking us more questions and we just want to try to evade it. We try to make apologies in the sense of apologizing for our convictions or to try to cover for their lack of spiritual convictions and religion. Someone asks us our opinion and we're reluctant to give an answer because we don't want to make them look bad and we're concerned about what they might think about us. That's not the idea here. The word apology comes from a court setting. And it's the idea of a defense. Giving a defense for one's situation and circumstance. It comes from the situation where Christians would stand before a worldly judge. And they were called to give support, evidence to support the case over against which they were being charged. The Christian must always be ready to prevent, to present his defense, his case, and to render an account of what that hope is and how that hope lives and why that hope is so important to him. Now, this doesn't involve a profound doctrinal discussion. The simple speech concerning the importance of God in my life is what's necessary and what flows out of our tongue. Intimidating it is to think, what will I say? What would I say? But the point here of the apostle is that simply, this is your defense concerning what you believe about God and what God means to you in your life. Now, there are times when we need to go into more detail. But for the most part, it's simply, what do I believe about God? And why do I believe that He is to be worshipped and that He's central in my life? There are times when we're ready to give this apology for our hope. Other times, sometimes we're not as. The Apostle says here, be ready always. Don't ever be without this hope and its evidence in your life and your walk. We know how quick we're tempted to pity ourselves, to focus on our own problems, to dwell on them, to be discouraged, distressed. And again, that's natural. But then we need to look to God's Word. We need to look to God's saints to help strengthen us and to lift us up so that that hope is controlling us rather than the discouragement and the doubts and the depression that so easily get a hold of us. We need to turn to the Word of God. We need to turn to fellow saints for that spiritual reminder. And we work hard to focus on that hope. That hope alone is able to lift us in the midst of the darkness and the struggles and the difficulties of life. The Holy Spirit gives us words to speak. And the Holy Spirit gives us that zeal and that love This impresses upon us, beloved, that we need to be in the Word. How will we be ready 
to speak of hope if we're not in the Word. And we're not living as those who are students of the Word. We're not living in the wonder of who we are by God's grace and who God is in all of His glory. We need to be in the Word. And the more we're in the Word, the more we're going to be impressed with the greatness of the glory of God and our own sinfulness and depravity. And both of those are going to direct our attention to that true hope that is ours in Jesus Christ alone. Often we're scared that we'll say the wrong thing. We're fearful, we'll embarrass that we might say too much. But being in the Word will equip and prepare us. And very practically, in the morning, before we go to work, we read a passage, we spend time with God in prayer. And then throughout the course of the day, that Word comes to remembrance in our minds. And someone perhaps brings something up. And God brings to remembrance that Word that we read this morning. And we're able to speak of that to someone else, to encourage them, to lift them giving evidence of the hope that lives within our hearts. Desiring to submit to the whole counsel of God in every area of our lives. And God's Word being that which is our guide and that which directs us. And testifying to those around us that we're not guided by emotions, we're not guided by what we want and what we desire, but by God's Word. And that God is the one who sets before us how we are to use His day. And God is the one who directs us in the nature of worship. Enthusiasm for the Word of God will be evident in the lives of those who are in the Word. Those who are spending time in prayer. And as we're in the Word, and as we spend time in prayer, and as we're asked questions and required to defend certain aspects of the Christian faith, we delve into specific areas then. God has given us many, many pamphlets written by all different authors. And perhaps a question is asked us and we don't know the immediate answer. But we have references that we can go to. Doctrine According to Godliness is a book, excellent book, that has to do with all of the various doctrines laid out in just small little chapters that are easy to understand. The pamphlets that we have access to. We grab a pamphlet or two, we read them, we challenge ourselves to grow in this area so that we can be better equipped to give an answer to those that ask. Perhaps we direct our devotions in a certain direction so that we can better speak concerning certain areas or subjects. But the Apostle's point here is far more simple. You who know the marvelous wonder of election and you who have been given a new life that's from above, know forgiveness. You know what God has done for you. And there's a spontaneous joy then that lives within your hearts, that erupts within you, and which is a testimony to God's faithfulness. And it will be seen by your conduct, by your conversation, by your attitude. And beloved, we would even say, this is the main way in which God adds to His church. Repeatedly it's found that while the church hosts lectures and mailings and ads and websites and all different tools, none of that can begin to compare with the personal witness of the hope and the joy of a believer to someone else. It's that which draws that one to church. It's that which gets that one interested in the Word of God and in studying 
more deeply. Now, how are we to give an answer? The apostle lays out carefully here. With meekness and fear. First of all, meekness is the opposite of pride and haughtiness. Our response must not be that with that of pride. And Peter correctly presupposes how quick our nature would go that direction. Our initial response when someone asks us something would be, I'm a Christian. You're not. Therefore, obviously I get it and I'm better than you because you don't even understand and you don't even know and you're not even willing to apply the Bible to your life. Or you can't handle the situation which you're in. But, but I can. Implying that I'm better. That I know more. That for that reason, I am proud. Never may we act as though the difference is of ourselves. Never do we act as though we're the ones who are going to heaven. Others aren't. That we're holier than others. It's only by the grace of God that we have this hope. It's only by the wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy that we are what we are. And we respond then with meekness, with humility. Humbly we acknowledge, God is the one to whom I owe all. He is the one who's performed this wonder in my life. He's the one who's given me this hope and this joy. And the only difference between me and someone who's an unbeliever is God. God's given me to understand my sin. He's given me to see the horror of that sin and to cry out for mercy. By nature, I'm no different from anyone. Humble as we acknowledge our sin, our shortcoming. Meekness is the virtue that allows us to suffer and to avoid getting even or getting back. So that rather than anger or vengeance... We're willing to suffer. And especially that's important in the context of persecution. And that's what the apostle here is talking about. In the next verses, he makes clear, it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And talks about the suffering of Jesus Christ. So that suffering may be your lot as a result of your confession concerning that hope. But then respond with meekness. Also, don't fear men. Verse 14, it urged that. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And so we walk humbly with meekness and with fear. The fear here is not fear of man, as is evident from this passage, but a godly fear. And that, again, has been an emphasis of Peter throughout the epistle, that we are to walk in such a manner that reflects a fear for God, an awe, a reverence to God for the great wonders that God has done in our lives. And that fear of God motivates us. That fear of God incites us. That godly fear so works in us humility and meekness. It turns us away from fear of man. It prevents us from giving in to their threats or responding in an adverse way to their accusations. It's a reverence. The purpose of our existence is to show forth praise and glory to God. And we stand before that God and we're conscious of our need to fear Him and to reverence Him. 
And so that godly fear is evident. Now that witness is active. It's not just passive. We don't just stand around waiting for someone to ask us a reason. We manifest that hope and we live out of that hope. And as we're living actively our Christian life, that hope is seen in our walk, in our conduct, in our attitude. An important point of Christian witnessing is emphasized here in this text. Many think the most important aspect of witnessing is to go out there, to do mission trips, and to hand out pamphlets and go door to door. And while there's a place for that kind of a thing, the emphasis here is your walk and your conduct, the life that you're living, so that every single moment of every single day is a witness. It's not that you have to consciously say, oh, I have to go be a witness now. And often when an individual does that, the rest of their life perhaps is not so much of a witness. And it destroys the attempt to witness. But the point is, your life is a constant witness. And that's the strong witness that must be evident. Others see how you live. They're going to desire to know the reason for it. Again, Peter knew how he had failed. He knew that his witness had not given God glory. We, with him, acknowledge the same. There are times when we look back and we are shamed by what we did, how we conducted ourselves. We sinned greatly and we did not faithfully maintain ourselves in accordance with God and his will. But then too, we repent. We turn away from that sin. We cry out for mercy and we look to God in His grace to restore and to give us strength to go forward, trusting in Him and humbly acknowledging His hand in our lives. This is the witness that gives glory to God. We point to the wonder of the grace of God. We point to God's goodness. We point to the wondrous works that God has performed through history. We rejoice in the wonder of those works. And regardless of whether we're mocked or that witness is appreciated, we continue to press on in thankful hope to God for what God has done for us with a prayer that God will bless that witness to his glory. How is that witness possible? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This can also read, sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. Now immediately the question arises, how are we able to make God more holy in our hearts? God is the Holy One already. And He calls Himself by that name as the Holy One. In other words, the admonition seems to require of us something that would be impossible for us to do. We know salvation is all of God. We know sanctification is all God's work. God is the one who sanctifies. At the same time, the Bible includes this in its detailed description of our calling in the midst of the world. And so how do we understand this? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. We cannot sanctify God himself in our hearts. But we can sanctify our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit so that God in Christ becomes more and more evident in our walk, in our decisions, in our conduct. God not only dwells within us as his people, but he dwells in us by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ is in us by his Spirit. And God's people, united to Christ by faith, are to live 
more and more out of Christ. They're to show forth His praise. To reflect the fact that they're temples of the Holy Spirit. That they're not their own, but they belong to Him. God sanctifies us by the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling in us, making us holy. Now what does it mean to be holy? To be separated from sin and to be devoted to God. The Spirit is working within us, causing us to be more sensitive to sin, exposing sin in our lives, working in us sorrow for that sin. The Spirit is working in us, causing us to love God more fully and to desire to live unto Him in wholehearted devotion to Him. Separated from sin, consecrated, devoted to God. Now we know that that is a work that continues until we die. It's never fully accomplished in the midst of this life. God justifies us. He declares us righteous. And now by His Spirit goes to work within us, making us holy. As that work of God is performed in us, we're called to live in such a way that decisions are made, that turn away from sin and turn unto God. Confessing ourselves to be God's children, sanctified by Christ, with Christ dwelling in us, we make mockery of that confession then when we continue to view porn and we continue to look upon things that are sinful and wicked. God says, turn your eyes away from that filth. You're a new creature in Christ. Live out of that spirit and show forth my praise. We don't say, I'm a child of God. So it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I watch. It doesn't matter how I conduct myself. We say, I'm a child of God. And as a child of God now, I live unto God. I show forth His praise. I desire to walk in a manner that reflects my battle against the old man and my commitment to Him and to the wonder of His goodness. When others see within us evidence of that spiritual battle and evidence of that walk and that conduct, they see in us that work of grace. And they see God's work in us. Not in the sense that we become God or we become divine, but in the sense that that holiness is not our own work. That's God's work in us as He's restoring the image of Christ within us. To sanctify the Lord God in our hearts then is to consecrate all the actions of our heart to Christ and to live out of Christ. As those who are justified, we hear the glorious word of Christ. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. We hear there is therefore now no condemnation. You are justified. And now, out of that flows the joy and the wonder of what Peter here calls a good conversation. A life now that's lived unto God and to His glory. A life that seeks to show forth His praise and to walk in a manner that bravely and beautifully displays that godly piety and that thankfulness that crowns our lives. And that walk and that conduct, the Apostle says, is justification over against evil speaking. 
In other words, they see that conduct and they're talking evil. And now that conduct puts them to shame. What can they say? It's evident that God's at work. It's evident that this individual is not being governed and directed by their own flesh. And what a blessing then accompanies that child of God. As Christ dwells in our hearts as Lord of his own sanctuary. And all the issues of our heart then are directed to Christ and to his glory. And we look to God for strength and for grace to bring all of the aspects of our lives into conformity with his will. There can be no hope in our hearts apart from that walk of sanctification. It's that walk of sanctification in which God directs and guides us that stirs up within us that hope. That we live in a manner that shows forth God's praise and we're leaning on God's word and we're looking to his word. The necessary activity of the regenerated soul in response to the work of the Holy Spirit is to lean on God's word and to trust Christ for forgiveness. And that sanctification requires that we are active. In no way does that deny the sovereignty of God in it. In no way does that deny that this is God's work. God causes us actively to do battle against sin. He works in us actively repentance and true sorrow for sin. He works in us actively a desire to love Him and to serve Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He works in us that longing to be holy even as He is holy. So that those around us see the power of the cross, the power of the grace of God that justifies and sanctifies. And we witness to this wonder This is God's work. This is the wonder of what God has done for me. And this is the hope that lives in my heart and in my soul. The witness of God's children throughout history often was so powerful, it brought the persecutors to the feet of Jesus. And that's what the apostle here is speaking of. You're going to be persecuted. Things are going to become difficult for you in the midst of this world. Your response and your conduct by the grace of God, is able to be such a witness that those who are persecuting you will see in you something that will cause them to ask questions and work in them a longing that God will use to draw them as his children into a knowledge and wonder of their salvation. Such is that power. And again, who was seated at the feet of Stephen, as Stephen is being stoned and collecting the coats. None other than the Apostle Paul. Who's standing before the cross of Jesus when Jesus is being crucified? The centurion, who later confesses, this man, this man was a righteous man. This man was a just man. God powerfully blessing the work of His grace in such a way that the witness of those around testified to that hope and that joy. This sanctified conduct not only gives us that hope, but it works that witness. And again, Peter knew what it's like apart from that. He knew that a lack of a disciplined spiritual walk brought shame to the name of God. That was Peter. 
too often. That's you and me too often. We don't walk in a manner that reflects a sanctified, disciplined walk. And we bring shame to the name of God. And that gives room and occasion for others to blaspheme because of our unfaithfulness. Who are they? They say they have the truth. And that's how they walk. That's how they live. That's how they talk on the basketball court. We hear them swear. We hear what they say. Who are the prots to criticize us when they're the ones that are living and walking in this manner? Is their response. And we're shamed. We're brought to our knees to confess our sin. And God works in us repentance and He turns us so that we understand and know the wonder of that hope even to a more full awareness. That hope cannot be lost. Though I'm a sinner, though I would squander it every single day, God so powerfully and marvelously restores that hope in my life. He gives me to know that that hope is not dependent on me. It's from eternity. And it's dependent on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that cannot be lost. It's a hope that cannot be cast off. It's a hope that will be preserved and kept through this life and to eternity. And God so works then the grace by which we in turn are thankful and we live in the consciousness of that wonder and that marvelous work of God's goodness. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank and praise thee for the wondrous salvation thou hast given us to know. For the marvelous work of grace by which thou hast worked in us, giving unto us to know a hope that is spiritual and heavenly. And we pray, Lord, that thou wilt work in us that walk and that conduct that reflects the power of thy grace in our lives. That as we sin, as we fall short, we might more and more be reminded of the power of thy grace, the marvelous wonder of that salvation that is ours, and that all the more that hope might be evident as we stand ready to give an answer concerning that glorious hope. Amen. We turn to Psalter number 175.